Hello and welcome to the program UFO Warning. In this episode we're talking about Peter Curry and the hair of an alien. That's correct, Peter Curry and the hair of an alien. This is one of those very strange uh, UFO abduction cases where uh, the experiencer has encountered a couple of humanoid aliens and in this case was assaulted by one of them. Now we have to be a little careful using some of the words that come up in this story because we want to keep the podcast clean, but I think that you'll get the gist of what we're talking about here. The first article comes to us from normalparanormal.org. That's normalparanormal.org. I'll have the link at the Buy Me Coffee website. As always, thanks to the folks that support the program over there and at Spotify. And while you're at it, you can also like, follow, and subscribe, and that doesn't cost anything. Now, the title of this article uh, says... The Peter Corey Alien Abduction Case, and it's written by Michael Brown. It says, uh, Peter Corey, Strange Beings, Abduction, and the Evidence They Left Behind. We'll get down into the article a little bit here. It says, Peter Corey was born in Iran in 1964 and began having strange experiences in the early 1970s in Lebanon. While playing with cousins and friends, he had his first encounter, at least the first one he can remember. The children were playing outside when they decided to ascend to a rooftop they often played on. The exterior to the roof was a large heavy metal door that was spring-loaded and would close on each person passing through the door. Frequenting this area to play, the children habitually knew to be ready to push open the door to pass through, but on this occasion Peter noticed something different. He noticed several children ahead of him who had passed through the door without swinging it back. The door instead remained open, which struck him as odd. As he passed through the door, however, matters became even stranger. Peter then noticed his friends and cousins were all frozen in place and not moving a muscle. His first thought was since he was the last to make it to the rooftop that he was the butt of a joke. He decided to return the favor and began tickling his friends to force them to snap out of their self-imposed status. But no matter how vigorously he tickled and teased his friends, they remained in place not even moving their eyes. I find this interesting because so many times in these abduction experiences, there's a strange foreshadowing that happens just before uh, these people have their encounter or their abduction experience. And here we see this young kid having this strange foreshadowing before what looks like lost time and probably a mass abduction of these children. Peter approached an older boy who was taller than him and began tickling him under the neck. As he looked up to see this boy's neck, he saw in the air above them an egg-shaped craft about the size of a VW bug. The craft was silver in color and hovered silently above them with no signs of wings, prostrate, or propulsion of any kind. On the craft, Peter also saw a screen that was tinted with two small and slim figures visible behind the screen who seemed to be piloting the craft. So here we have one of these one of these encounters where they see the person sees the craft they see a window, or in this case, a screen, and then they see creatures, these creatures behind the screen or through the window. He noticed the figures looking at each other and then back to the rooftop several times. The craft then began to move back, back and forth over the rooftop, still making no sounds while all of Peter's friends and family remained frozen. The next thing that Peter knew, they were all there on the ground floor once again with the sounds of their parents frantically calling their names in the distance. The children were all at this point unfrozen 
and back to normal, but all confused as to what had taken place or how they all suddenly ended up on the ground. Peter was the only one that saw the craft, and so he kept this story to himself for many years for fear of being labeled crazy or making things up. The Frank parents found the children and were at once relieved, angry, and as and as confused as the children. Peter and his friends experienced a split second from their location on the roof to the ground, but the parents accused the children of lying when questioned about where they had been since the children were all missing for a period of two hours. You would have heard us calling you if you had been on that roof, the parents scolded. The children were grounded for not coming clean about where they had been, which also helped to keep Peter's version of the story secret. Who would believe this story from a child? Well, you can hardly blame the kid for not wanting to share the fact that he'd seen a spaceship just before they had this missing time. Goes on and says, Peter and his family immigrated to Australia, where he still lives today, but his experiences followed him down under. In 1988, he was dating his high school sweetheart, Vivian. They were alone at night while discussing a trip to Queensland they were going to make when Peter saw a bright white object about baseball size, which was high in the sky. The object stopped on a dime in line with the northern star of the Southern Cross constellation. He grabbed a bunch of paper and rolled it up to look through to get a better focus on the object. He and Vivian saw the object shoot out a beam of solid light and then appear in two places at once, but then disappear from the first location and appear on the opposite end of the beam. The light did this several times rapidly while they watched. So here we have one of these UFOs seeming to manifest itself with a, in a, with some kind of a light beam and it's moving back and forth almost like it's you know just just changing its shape back and forth between light and solid matter peter sensed the orb of light was searching for something then the object shot up rapidly into the atmosphere and was out of sight peter couldn't help but think about his childhood experience but states that at this time he was totally unaware of the ufo phenomena and how many others were affected by it Six months later, Peter was living with his family once again after being on his own for several years. He was watching TV with his father in the living room of their home while his brother slept in Peter's bedroom. It was 11.15 p.m. when Peter's brother came into the living room and requested Peter watch TV in his room so his brother could sleep in the living room. Peter thought it was odd but obliged and went into his bedroom. Peter sat on his bed, reached over to turn on the TV, and then reclined on his bed, stretching his arms between his head to relax. The instant his head hit the pillow, it happened. Peter felt something grip his right ankle, which he thought was a thumb and index finger, or perhaps some kind of clamp or device. The instant he felt the grip, he felt pins and needles up his leg and throughout his body. It was then Peter realized he was totally paralyzed. He could not move or call out to his family, the only part of his body he could move was his eyes. He was filled with anxiety at the thought of being totally helpless and unable to move or call out for help. He looked to the foot of his bed to see what had grabbed him, and what he saw filled him with terror. Peter observed a short figure wearing a cloak with the hood pulled over its head. The creature had dark blue skin and black eyes. The face of the creature looked ape or gorilla-like. At this moment, Peter felt that he was in the presence of evil and that he was in great danger. He then looked to his right and saw two more of these figures. The gravity of the moment hit him. He was outnumbered and could not move, and he believed these beings were there to do him harm. But then he saw movement to the left side of his bed. So we have a classic case here of these strange 
aliens. To me, this almost bleeds over into the whole Bigfoot phenomenon, where you have these, uh, you know, ape-like creatures, these uh, whatever they are, but this blue skin and the hoods over the top. This doesn't sound like these guys are here for a kumbaya moment. I mean, he feels an evil presence. To his left, he saw two more figures in his room, but these were much taller and thinner than the others. Years later, upon seeing the cover of Whitley Strieber's book, Communion, Peter was stunned at how similar that being looked to these two figures in his bedroom. He is not sure how, but he perceived one being male and the other female. I like the fact that he does perceive these things as being of two different genders, but he says, I don't know how I knew, I just knew. Each wore a surgical-type mask, but the male figure had his mask hanging under his chin. He locked eyes with one of the taller beings and was instantly calmed. Just a moment later, Peter was in a full panic, but was immediately calmed by looking into the black eyes of his strange figure. He was then communicated telepathically and was told that everything would be okay. He would not be harmed and not to worry since it would be like last time. You know, that wouldn't exactly have a calming effect on me. It sounds like this guy's been abducted multiple times. I mean, he's just been targeted, clearly. Like last time, what last time, Peter thought. The mill figure then held up a device and three figures that looked like a long syringe with a fiber optic light coming out from the end. The being pointed the object at a spot on the back of Peter's head. He then blacked out. Peter woke abruptly and shot out of his bed to a standing position, his pent-up desire to move suddenly exploding. He went straight to the living room where his brother and father were still sleeping. Did the beings also visit them? He began shaking his father to wake him, but he was unable to. After several minutes, he became fearful, thinking his father might be dead. He turned to his brother and began shaking him, calling him, calling out his name, but only after several hard slaps to the face did his brother awake. His brother then stated that he felt switched off. Peter asked his brother how long he had been in his bedroom, to which he answered about 10 or 15 minutes. This answer put Peter at ease, as he also felt this was the case. But they then realized that the TV had ceased broadcasting for the night, which meant it was closer to 3 o'clock in the morning. Where did the additional two hours go? Had Peter been taken somewhere? Is this what happened last time? The brothers worked together to eventually wake their father, who also had no knowledge of what happened to them. Now, this seems like one of these cases where the aliens have come in and they've abducted one person and then they've just basically checked the other two or three or how many ever out. And I've just kind of put them to sleep somehow. Once again, we have these things coming into a household, uh, kidnapping people against their will, assaulting people by just immobilizing them. Nobody asks these guys, hey, would you like to go to sleep for a couple of hours while we abduct your brother and son? And they just come in and they just do it. After this encounter had taken place, Peter and his family then thought of other strange events that had happened recently. On several occasions, Peter and others in the family heard what sounded like many footsteps loudly marching up to their driveway. Peter and his brother would hear the footsteps, each looking to the driveway from separate vantage points and seeing nothing. The day after Peter's encounter with the beings in his room, he found a strange burn mark on his shin. He described the mark to his wife as a cigarette burn, but when he showed her hours later, the mark had almost entirely healed. Vivian did find a small spot of dry blood on the back of Peter's head where the being touched him with the strange device. Vivian suggested Peter go see a doctor for a checkup just to be safe, which he did. Peter came clean to the doctor and told her everything that had happened. Peter had been seeing this doctor for about 10 years and so trusted her with, his, with this information. 
When Peter told her the tale, however, she laughed at him as if this were the funniest thing she'd ever heard. As a result, Peter never went back to this doctor again, but then began looking into psychologists and counselors or anyone that would be able to help him deal with his ongoing encounters. Over and over, he found that as soon as he mentioned feeling and seeing presences in his room, everyone he spoke to refused to help him. Now, that's terrible. I mean, even if these folks didn't believe in the possibility of alien abductions or encounters, then they could have approached this uh, from the perspective that this guy is in, the mental, in, is in the middle of a mental health crisis. And if that's the case, they could have offered him some sort of recommendation to a therapist, maybe decided, you know, if they needed to treat uh, some sort of mental disorder. But laughing at somebody in the middle of this is just about the most awful thing I can imagine. Because you're doing one of two things. Either you're completely discounting somebody who's had an actual uh, encounter with aliens, it's been, been abused by these things, or you're totally discounting a person's uh, the, the fact that a person's in the middle of a mental health crisis. Either way, you have denied uh, care to, to people on both ends of the spectrum. So whether this person actually had a experience and they need to talk to somebody about it, or whether this person is in the middle of a mental health crisis, this doctor has denied giving them the kind of uh, assistance or medical care that they need. Both acts, really unconscionable. It goes on here, it says, finally Peter found a counselor in Sydney who had heard of others experiencing the same phenomena and heard it was connected to UFO sightings. This shocked Peter as he was not interested in the UFO phenomena and never thought to make the connection to his encounters, but this motivated Peter to go on a quest to attend every support group and read every UFO-themed book he could get his hands on. But Peter's most disturbing encounter was yet to come. It almost seems like maybe Peter has uh, been, has, maybe he's had his memories somewhat wiped of these things, or at least compartmentalized by these aliens. The fact that he's not really interested in the UFO phenomenon, even after experiencing these traumatic uh, encounters, would almost seem as though there's been some sort of interference here on his uh, unconscious level. He goes on here, it says, in 1992, Peter was badly injured while fooling an attempted robbery of a construction site he worked at. He was nearly killed in the exchange and so took an extended leave of absence from work. One morning, while driving his wife to the train station for work, he found that the further he traveled from home, the more violently ill he became. On a drive that normally took two or three minutes, Peter pulled over the car to vomit approximately 10 times. Once he dropped his wife off and made for home, Peter noticed the closer he got to home, the sickness seemed to wane. Once home, he was exhausted from getting ill, so he went straight to bed and pulled the covers over his head. Now, this almost seems to me like some sort of uh, control mechanism that's being exerted over him. Let me tell you, if you've ever been real sick or had food poisoning, I know I had food poisoning one time and I vomited 11 times, and by the end of that ordeal, you are so exhausted and, and beat up from that. So you, I can imagine how this, how poor Peter feels at this point. He's vomited 10 times. It's almost like something has forced this on his body because they want to get him back home where they can get to him. That's what it seems like to me. After several minutes, Peter then felt the bed sag as if someone sat on it. He pulled the covers from his head and began to sit up expecting to see a cat or dog on the bed that followed him into the house. A neighborhood pet was not what he saw. Sitting on his bed were two nude women. 
So, you know, here you have poor old Peter. I mean, you're, you're laying in bed. Uh, obviously, he's, he's just, you know, been violently ill. He feels the bed kind of sag down. Now, that tells you someone's on the bed. But the first thing his brain does, it kind of goes into this uh, normalcy bias mode. Well, it must be a uh, neighborhood pet, which would in, in itself be uh, kind of concerning to me. Now, it goes on here. It says, one woman was blonde and was straddling him, while the other woman who sat on the edge of his bed looked Asian with dark hair and dark eyes. The blonde woman grasped the back of Peter's head with both her hands and pulled him forcefully into her left breast. He experienced a second where his consciousness, awareness, or perhaps his astral body moved before his physical body. He could see a wispy outline of himself and the strange woman through it. So she's really exerting some sort of strange force over him. These things, as he describes them here, you'll see, they almost seem... Uh, interdimensional as if they just showed up out of nowhere it wasn't like they walked in the front door of the house you know he says he says he's laying there in his bed he's trying to recover and then he just feels this you know kind of oomph as the bed sags down with someone sitting on it so even though they're interdimensional they have mass they have weight it says it goes on to say then Peter's physical body caught up. Being prone to claustrophobia made Peter very uncomfortable, and he began to struggle but found the strength of this woman nearly impossible to oppose. Peter is a large and strong man with experience in several martial arts, but he found himself overpowered by the stranger. In panic, Peter bit down slightly on the woman's skin. Of course, that skin was around that certain area where she had forced his head to, let's say, which allowed him to push her away. He then felt something in his mouth, perhaps the woman's skin, the object in Peter's mouth then hit the back of his throat and began to burn like acid, which caused him to begin coughing uncontrollably. Peter sensed the two women communicating with each other and heard them say, something is wrong. He did something wrong. This isn't like last time. So perhaps they'd been using Peter, I think, for some sort of uh, human alien breeding program, it sounds like. And maybe because he had been studying uh, this phenomena so much, he started to become aware, at least subconsciously, of what was happening. And when this woman, uh, this alien creature, grabbed him and forced his head into her chest area, you can fill in the blanks, uh, he took a bite out of that very prominent uh, uh, fleshy piece of, of uh, tissue is kind of disgusting as that sounds a piece of that stuff came off and lodged in his throat he talks about how he was coughing and gagging for three days trying to get it out you can imagine it goes on it says during another coughing fit peter briefly bent over to for forcefully cough and then he sat back up the two women were gone so he's here coughing and gagging he's got this little piece of flesh apparently that he bit from this woman wherever this thing was this humanoid not quite human, not quite alien, and he's had a terrible effect from it. He completely messes her plan up, and the next thing you know, they're gone in the flesh. They just disappear. That's what I'm talking about when I say interdimensional. It's just like they're there, and then they're gone. No one's coming in and out the back door here. It says, uh, to stop his coughing and the burning in his throat, Peter went to the kitchen and ate some bread, then drank some water. This only seemed to make the burning worse. However, he went into the bathroom to use a toilet, but while checking himself out to check for a wound, 
Peter found two hairs that looked like they were pressed deep into the skin down there. Peter removed the hairs and immediately sealed them in a plastic bag. He then marked the bag with the date and time and hid it in his filing cabinet while keeping the details of the incident to himself. How could he relate this tale to his wife? Well, I can under I can kind of understand that. This is bizarre. It is such a uh, strange nature to it. I mean, clearly he was assaulted, but at the same time, maybe he's thinking in his own mind, wow, if I tell my wife there were these two women, even if they weren't like actual human women in my room and this happened and this hair ended up there where it shouldn't be at, you know, what is she going to think? Now it says several weeks went by before Peter felt comfortable enough to share the story with his wife who surprised him with her understanding and support. And by this time, Peter had also befriended Australian researcher Bill Chalker, but was still not comfortable sharing details of the hairs left behind by the strange women. He simply wasn't ready for the answers to his question. You know, this goes a lot to male masculinity and, you know, you know, an idea of, wow, how could this happen to me? I mean, just such so many strange uh, negative emotions uh, going on here with this whole uh, assault that happened on this on this uh, unfortunate experiencer. Now they tell us that several years went by before Peter brought the hairs to Bill for analysis. And once Peter trusted Bill as a friend and made peace with what answers may come, he handed them to Bill, who forwarded them to a lab for DNA testing. The results were shocking. Not only did the blonde hairs come back as a rare type of Mongolian Asian DNA, but the root of the hair had a different DNA profile than the shaft of the hair. This does not naturally occur in humans, but there was more. The tests were repeated to ensure the accuracy of the results and the secondary results were consistent with the first. The lab, led by Dr. Horst Drew, also ran CCR5 tests on the DNA and found that these individuals showed signs of immunity to things like smallpox and AIDS. The results of the testing showed signs of possible gene editing or cloning techniques, according to the scientist who worked on this case. Now that's some crazy stuff there. Peter continues to help others who experience abductions by sharing their experiences and letting others know they are not alone in their struggle to deal with events like this. Bill Chalker continues to research the phenomena and has written several books, including Hair of the Alien, DNA, and other forensic evidence of alien abductions, which further detail the events of Peter's story. Man, what a great article. Yeah, this, this it's just fascinating how this guy, is, he's a repeat uh, abductee is what it looks like to me. And I just wonder if they hadn't had this guy in some sort of alien breeding program. But as he uh, continued on with his research about uh, you know, the alien phenomena and the abduction phenomena, I think he became more and more aware of what was happening. And somehow what he was learning consciously was able to uh, seep into his subconscious, his unconscious mind, to the point where when they came back for him again, this time he resisted. And it seems like with these things, when people resist then they have, to, they have to back off. Now, I want to look at one more article here before we finish this up. Now, this last article I want to look at comes to us from howandwise.com, howandwise.com. I'll have the link at the Buy Me A Coffee website, of course. It says here, kind of down into the article, uh, talking about uh, this Peter Curry's experience. It says, in 1996, Harvard psychiatrist John Mack did a hypnotic regression on Peter to understand what had happened to him in 1988. Under hypnosis, Peter said that he was taken to a room full of lights. 
He was on the table with one creature above him, but could not find out more than that. Because of the bizarre and controversial nature of the 1992 episode, Peter was more comfortable describing his 1988 experience. And clearly, this guy was traumatized by what happened with these two uh, female humanoid creatures, just the nature of the assault. And I, I could... I could see why that would happen. He says, because of the 1988 and 1992 experiences, Peter's case was widely discussed and came into the knowledge of UFO researcher Bill Chalker. He began an investigation into the case and did the world's first PCR, that's polymerase chain reaction DNA test on the hair sample. I don't think we can underestimate how important this this DNA test is on this hair sample. Very, very strange. The test results showed that the hair was biologically close to human genetics, but came from an unusual human race, probably a rare Chinese mongoloid type. Now see, that seems to me like the people at the lab were giving themselves some wiggle room. I mean, how do you say something's close to human? To me, it's either human or it's not human. Could Peter Curry's July 1988 alien encounter be an example of the well-established phenomena known as sleep paralysis? Now, I don't really appreciate what the author does right here. They take a little pivot. Now, we've got this really compelling evidence of this hair sample and the fact that there was a DNA sample test done on it. I mean, they said that they need to do more tests, but uh, they, they lack the funding. Okay, well, there's something that I think some of our UFO uh, celebrities could get behind. They could test some of this stuff instead of just, I don't know, putting up spy networks all over the entire globe trying to look for UFOs. But the article here, instead of focusing on this DNA evidence, they, they pivot toward this whole notion of sleep paralysis. I don't care about the sleep paralysis. I don't care about that argument. It doesn't hold water. Uh, people can have sleep paralysis. Most of us have experienced it at some time or another. But when you have sleep paralysis, uh, you don't normally wake up with uh, bits of blood on the back of your head and hair from a humanoid alien. That's not a normal thing. And when you have sleep paralysis, that doesn't normally uh, go along with an intense uh, memory of being uh, assaulted by female human alien hybrids. So you can see here how the debunkers uh, will use things like sleep paralysis to try to take away from the experience that somebody who's been abducted has had. Now I'm not saying that every single person who claims to have been abducted by aliens has, but I am saying that when that person comes back with physical evidence, then the focus should be on the evidence first and then on whether or not this person experienced, uh, you know, a mental health crisis, say, as a, a complete, uh, you know, delusion, whatever, or whether it was sleep paralysis. I'm not interested in any of those arguments until I've eliminated uh, whether or not this evidence could, could be accurate. The fact is, this guy found a hair on his body. He held on to it. They took it in. They did a DNA test on it and found out that this thing was uh, biologically close to human genetics. Now, you know, a chimpanzee is biologically close to human genetics. I suppose a banana is at some level. I mean, we're all made of organic stuff, right? But close is not good enough, especially in genetics. It has to be perfect. This is not a perfect human match. This just screams human-alien hybrid to me. And I think that that part of the story 
has been underreported here. I think people are caught up with the sensationalism of this uh, of this fellow being assaulted by these uh, creatures, and then uh, when 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 you get that story out there, just like he was afraid it would happen. You, the debunkers come in and say, well, this is just a crazy nightmare this guy had. He's had sleep paralysis. Uh, you know, turn your head, go back to sleep. The fact is he had evidence, hair from one of these creatures. The fact is his hair was tested and it was found to be close to a human. Now, to me, that's non-human. It's either all human or non-human. If it's not all human, then it must be the product of some sort of alien human breeding program or some sort of uh, some sort of some sort of counterfeit but i think i think it's important to get to the to, to do a complete examination of the evidence that this man has presented us the physical evidence and then once we either decide that this is uh, can't be explained then we can we can investigate the topic from that perspective. But until they rule out this evidence, this DNA evidence from his hair, that this is that this is purely from a, a human construction. Until that's done, they don't need to talk to me about sleep paralysis or uh, whether or not he made this up or he has false memories or any of that stuff. To me, the most important part of the story, other than that, uh, Mr. Curry is a repeat experiencer, is that. It's one of the only times that I know of that there was actual physical evidence from one of these alien creatures that was that was recovered and that was tested and came up with these bizarre DNA profiles. I believe that one video said that there were possibly only four other samples like this have ever been recovered, uh, you know, known, known to man. I would love to know if these four other, or three other samples rather, I would love to know if these three other samples or whatever they were, were recovered uh, in relation to an alien encounter. Anyway, really cool stuff, really cool story. Have the links right by me a coffee. Until next time, this is UFO Warning, over and out.